0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Limi Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Melissa Lee about her book Crippling Leviathan, How Foreign Subversion Weakens the State, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2020. When states are weak, when they're not able to extend their authority throughout their territory, We often assume that's because they don't have the resources or the know-how. This book challenges that assumption and argues that state weakness may actually have international roots. Melissa, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Now, I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: So I'm a scholar of state building and state development. I'm really interested in what makes a state a state. Why are some countries more state-like, right? Why do they control territory? Why are they effective at providing public goods and governing their populations? And why are some states not good at this? And so all of my work examines this question from both an international lens and contemporary politics, but also a comparative and historical lens, like trying to understand how today's strong states became strong states. And so this book, Crippling Leviathan, is really a, a book that investigates
0: why some states did not become strong states. Wonderful. So how did you, can you tell us the story of how you came to write this book? So um, the story, I think, begins in the
1: first year of graduate school. So I was really interested in questions about state weakness, right? So one of the most uh, important political events of my lifetime was, of course, the 9-11 terror attacks and the invasions of Afghanistan and subsequently Iraq. And so there, at the time there was a lot of rhetoric about the role of weak statehood and the external public bads that they were generating. I was really interested in trying to understand what was causing weak statehood. And in graduate school, I found that that I was dissatisfied, unsatisfied with the existing theories that were largely domestic in origin. And as an international relations scholar in training, I, I couldn't kick the feeling that there was something international to the story and that we were missing that in the scholarship. And so I follow that intuition and was that is what motivated me to write the book. So the claim of the book is not that international factors are the only explanations, but that we do have to account for them when we are thinking about the causes of weak statehood and why weak states persist.
0: Thank you for that. Now, um, the book, as you mentioned, is about sort of the causes of weak statehood um, and it focuses on this concept that you call state consolidation. Can you tell us how you understand that term? When I think about state consolidation, I am thinking really about the
1: state's presence over its territory and its, its administrative and regulatory presence in the lives of the people that it purports to govern. And so this is not simply having a capital, controlling the capital, you know, being able to build a bureaucracy that sits in the capital. It's really about the state being in its outlying areas in the capital, but also in the periphery. Right. So in the book, I use a US, uh, I open with an example from the U.S., the capital is Washington, D.C., right. But the state's presence can be felt far from Washington, D.C., in Oregon, for example, down in Texas, for example, up in Maine. And that's not true for many other countries in the world. Right. The state's presence is quite limited outside of the capital. And when I think about uh, how individuals interact with the state. In those countries where state presence is limited, you could have a very different relationship with the state if you're located in the capital versus being located out in the periphery. And to the, in some extremes, you may have no relationship with the state. And that's what I'm thinking about state consolidation. A consolidated state is one where its presence is even throughout its territory.
0: That's very helpful. Now, early on in the book, you introduce a really remarkable data set uh, that measures state authority. Can you tell us about that?
1: So this data set um, was developed to uh, the data set was developed to overcome a measurement issue. Right. So now that I have this concept of the state's reach throughout its territory, how do we actually observe that? And existing uh, data sets didn't quite capture the concept the way that I was thinking about it. Right. So existing data sets tended to privilege. Um, violence, for example. But in many countries that where the state's presence is limited or absent, we don't actually observe violence. So think about the country of Georgia and the Caucasus, for example. There are places where the state's authority is completely absent and the state is not actively contesting it. Because it's not actively contesting authority, we don't see violence, right? And so I needed a way to capture Um, the absence of state authority that didn't rely on observing violence. And so um, the solution to this was to draw on, on the influence of an author that I really like in political science, James Scott. James Scott has this idea that he calls legibility, which is this idea about the states having information about its population. We take for granted today that the state knows who we are, where we live, right? We carry driver's licenses, for example. Um, The state has social security information about us. But we we take it for granted, but this is, again, not true in many parts of the world where the state's authority is absent. And so I really keyed on this idea with my co-author Nan Zhang, that having information is meaningful. It tells us something about the state's presence. And so this data set, builds on this idea that if the state has accurate information, then it must be present in a regulatory sense, right, in an administrative sense.
0: And so uh, you mentioned sort of your uh, being inspired by James Scott. Um, and as I understand it, to build this data set, you uh, rely on uh, census information. Is that right?
1: Yes, so the census is super cool for a variety of reasons. Right? It's, it's kind of a basic administrative exercise. It's been done since biblical times and even before that, right, in ancient Rome and in ancient China. It's a very basic exercise where the state tries to count its people and also figure out very uh, rudimentary facts about the people, right? how old they are, where they live, for example. Um, historically, the census was carried out for reasons of taxation and conscription. If you want to tax people, you need to know where they live. If you want to conscript them for military service, you need to know how many uh, military aged men there are. Um, One of the cool things about the census is that uh, most modern censuses collect information about the ages of their population. And age accuracy is actually quite intimately related to the state's authority. And so you might think, well, why is this? Like, What does knowing your age have to do with anything? And it turns out that knowing your age in precise quantitative terms, right, so whether or not I'm 33 or 37 or 41, um, reflects the state's attempt to order society and to govern society on the basis of precise quantitative age right? So again, let's go back to the example of a driver's license. To be eligible for a driver's license, in many U.S. states, you have to be at least age 16 or age 17. To be eligible to vote, there's a certain like, age threshold, right? To enroll your child in school, there is sometimes an age threshold. And so the state gives meaning to age because of these rules and regulations over society. And so if you don't know exactly how old you are, that suggests that the state has not provided meaning to precise age. Now again, it's not that people don't know how old they are. They might have, they might know that they've reached the age of adulthood or that they're still a child. They can reckon age in qualitative terms, but it's only when the state gives meaning to age in a regulatory sense that we care whether or not we're 31 or 30, 21 or 18 or 16 or whatever the, the threshold is. And so when people don't know their age, when the state can't get accurate information about people's ages, That tells us something about the absence of state authority. And so this data set basically quantifies the degree of accuracy of age information and uses that as a proxy for state presence. Or to reverse it, more inaccuracy in age suggests greater state weakness because the state is absent.
0: That's really fascinating. Um, And I think, if I understand correctly, as you're describing the chapter, usually the distribution of ages tends to be smooth. And when we see sort of clustering around uh, numbers that end in zero or five, that's because people are sort of guesstimating their ages, right, and that helps you um, be able to sort of uh, indicate whether or not the state is accurately gathering age information in that area. Uh
1: that's correct, right? So people don't guess randomly when, they're, when they don't have age information, they tend to focus on focal numbers, right? So 40, 35, 50, and so on. Those focal numbers can differ across cultures, but the cool de- the demographic technique that um, is used to quantify age inaccuracy is actually agnostic about the focal numbers. And it's, it's a measure that is actually reported in some censuses. So it's demographers themselves developed this measure. And so um, being aware of the accuracy issues with respect to age data, some census reports will actually include this measure. In, in my case, I actually had to build all the data, collect it all and calculate it myself. Just but so being, be able at, being able to do this at the subnational level gives me a sense of the state's physical presence or regulatory presence across its territory.
0: Right. And so you wind up with this sub national data set and also global data set, right? And so you're able to, uh, you know, get a sense of state authority to at, again, the sub state level and across countries. Now, based on this data set, um, you provide us some description of uh, what you call ungoverned, ungoverned spaces around the world. Um, mm-hmm. So, what can you tell us about the prevalence of these ungoverned spaces? Well, first, I would say that,
1: um, as I note in the book, ungoverned spaces are, is a bit of a misnomer, right? So the word comes out of the policy community, especially in security and intelligence studies, um, reflecting, I think, the sense at the time of the 9-11 attacks that there are places where the state doesn't govern. Right? But these areas are not technically ungoverned. They're not zones of chaos. They're simply governed by entities that are not the sovereign state. And so when I say ungoverned in the book, I am referring to these types of places where the central state, the sovereign state, does not actually govern that territory. And while we can think of many well-known examples, so for example, parts of Afghanistan under the Taliban, you know, these places where where Al Qaeda had taken up uh, refuge. While those places are sort of well known to Americans, they're not actually that uncommon in the international space, right? So there are many examples of places where the state's authority is incomplete, contested, or absent, all of which I sort of subsume under this category of ungoverned space. These spaces exist in uh, countries that we otherwise think of as, as um, developed or developing, right? So they exist in India and in Pakistan. They also exist in Southeast Asia. So think of uh, parts of the Philippines in the southern um area of the archipelago where there's been long running civil wars. Um, I mentioned the Caucasus states again, so Georgia's breakaway territories, for example. In Europe, we see them Um, in Moldova, the breakaway territory of Transnistria. And then between, um, you know, after 2014, when uh, Eastern Ukraine declared its independence from Kiev, we could consider Donbass as an area of ungoverned space. Of course, this, again, this was contested, and so we observed violence there. But again, it's not a place where the central state was able to govern effectively. So they're quite pervasive, even in places where we wouldn't expect to find them.
0: One of the things you also use this data set to demonstrate is um, you look at sort of what the quality of life is like in these spaces um, and the fact that it's, it's quite consequential right, for people to be living uh, in these sort of, quote unquote ungoverned spaces. Right? Um, now I wanna get to the core theoretical argument of the book. You argue that if we want to understand state weakness we should be paying attention to foreign subversion. Now, what do you mean when you talk about foreign subversion?
1: So, I define foreign subversion as the external empowerment of non state actors. I call these non state actors proxy groups. Um, External empowerment of these non state actors with the purpose of undermining the target state uh, in order to advance the external actor's foreign policy agenda. So, let me break that down. Okay, so we can think of an external actor as another state, an adversary. An enemy of the target state. So, take Russia for example, with respect to Ukraine in 2014. So, Russia is the sponsor, Ukraine is the target, and in this case, the groups that I'm calling proxies are these armed groups that emerge in the Donbas region um, after uh, the sort of these armed groups that emerge in the Donbas region, right? That are proclaiming the independence of the two republics in that area. Okay. Foreign subversion is we can think of foreign subversion as basically a substitute for the conventional use of force. We're now observing that conventional use of force in Ukraine. Right. But between 2014 and now, Russia's strategy was to work via these armed groups. Right to weaken Ukraine, to prevent the government from governing this territory in order to get leverage and influence over Ukraine's domestic and foreign policy. Right. And in this specific case, Russia was trying to prevent Ukraine from uh, integrating with the West, with joining the West, joining NATO, moving closer to the European Union and so on. Right. And there's a number of reasons why weakening the state's authority is actually useful as a foreign policy, as an instrument of foreign policy. For one, it can provide bargaining leverage for the target for the for the sponsor state. Right? So the sponsor state could make demands, could ask for concessions in return for shutting off the support. And in the book, I talk about several examples where the target where the sponsor state doesn't even need to acknowledge that it is culpable in the undermining of state authority of the target state. It could just say, well, I could be, be helpful for you in dealing with this domestic problem you have if only you would make these policy concessions, right? So that's a story of getting bargaining leverage, um, but it can sometimes be useful to deny the target state access to its territory in general right? So if the territory has valuable natural resources, it could prevent um, the target from being able to get to those. Um, so this is the story of Sudan and uh, its neighbor, Uganda. Uganda was undermining authority and creating lawlessness in parts of Sudan that happened to be places where um, natural resource oil extraction companies were operating. And it created such a, a lawless environment that the oil companies did not want to continue their activities there for reasons of safety and security. Um, In addition, uh, foreign subversion can be um, useful because the buffer that is created is is sort of provides space, right? Just sort of like a, we can think of this as like a a buffer space between the target and the um, external adversary. Um, And it can also be useful for distracting the target state. Right? It's very hard for a government to ignore this kind of chaos brewing on its on its periphery. And so it's going to force policymakers to respond. We know, of course, policymakers can do many things at once, but there is something about that is distracting, that it forces the expenditure of resources and attention
0: that would not have otherwise been spent. And so one of the things that you go into in um, the theoretical discussion is you describe the sort of conditions under which subversion happens, right? You talk about means and motive. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Right. So I think of subversion as something that is uh, the state's deploy against their enemies, right? This is not something that the United States is going to use against Canada in one of our existing uh, territorial disputes. We do have some unresolved territorial disputes, but we generally consider Canada to be a friendly state, right? We have good relations, and so we're not going to resort to, like, looking for ways to uh, prevent Canada from governing its territory as to, to get resolution on these, like, island disputes that we have. Rather, um, there has to be some kind of a deep and very salient policy dispute or incompatibility, as I call it, between the sponsor state and the target state, right? So we do have these territorial disputes against Canada, but like nobody really cares about them. You know, they affect some, they affect fishing and fishermen um, in the immediate area, but this is not like an existential threat for the United States. Same for Canada. Whereas a country like Russia really feels you know, that its security is threatened by the movement of some of these former Soviet republics toward the West, right? And so this is perhaps one of the most important policy issues for Moscow. And so it's that set of cases where the policy dispute is deep, very salient, um, unable to be resolved uh, with other means that generates the motive to use subversion. So that first condition is motive. There has to be a reason why you do this. And it has to be a very good one, right? Something that's not generally amenable to resolution by other strategies. The other um, condition is there has to be the means, right? So in the book, I argue that these proxy groups, these non-state actors don't come out of nowhere. They cannot be manufactured out of thin air. So usually these groups are armed actors, rebels, or, um, you know, Uh, aggrieved populations that often have quite legitimate um, complaints uh, against their target state, against the target state government, they might be marginalized, neglected, discriminated against. Right. And so for whatever reason, they are organized and seek to uh, address those grievances by um, establishing something like their own authority, something like quasi sovereign authority. And so it's the coincidence of a motive embodied by these policy disputes and the means, which is a, a group on the ground in the target state willing to cooperate with the sponsor that set the stage for subversion to occur. So to go back to that US example with Canada, there is, I can think of no means in that case either. So not only do we lack the motive, but there is no means even if we had a motive. So again, mo- you need both. You need the motive and you need the means. And if you're missing one of those, we should not expect to observe subversion. We should expect states to
0: turn to other foreign policy instruments instead. It's a really sophisticated argument. Um, So the final piece of the puzzle that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, again, you're interested in explaining patterns in state consolidation. You argue that um, subversion is, you know, one of the main factors we ought to be uh, looking at. So can you describe the relationship between subversion and state consolidation. In other words, how does subversion weaken states? So I identify three
1: different ways that subversion actually undermines uh, state authority and prevents or makes it very difficult for the state to govern. And I, we can think of these three pathways as removal, replacement, and reorientation. So by removal, I'm referring to the actual destruction of the state's physical presence. So often these proxy groups, these armed state actors, the first thing they have to do is to get rid of whatever state presence is already in the area. And so that could could take the form of attacks on state infrastructure, right? The destruction of bridges, government offices uh, and so on. But it also tends to involve um, the elimination or intimidation of government agents, right? Government needs bureaucrats to actually be able to govern on the ground. And so um, many of these proxy groups will either uh, try to kill these bureaucrats or to intimidate them and to get them to leave their positions. Right. So that's the removal stage. You have to eliminate whatever government presence is on the ground. But because these groups often seek to govern in lieu of the state, there is a replacement process, a, a process in which they then introduce their own agents their own bureaucrats and create uh, their own institutions. So sometimes these institutions are parallel institutions. So in the book, I talk about the Kurdish example in which uh, the 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 PKK, which was a Kurdish terrorist group that was seeking to govern Southeast Turkey in lieu of the state, set up institutions that operated basically at nighttime or whenever the government was not around. So if the the government was trying to tax, then the um, PKK's own institutions would mirror that and also engage in taxation. In other cl- cases, the institutions are actual replacements, right? Because the elimination phase has been successful. And so these are alternate forms of courts, for example, alternate taxation authorities, usually us uh, standing up of an alternate military, right? So that's the replacement stage. But then I think the most insidious pathway in which Um, subversion undermines governance is through reorientation, which is much more of a psychological or cognitive process among the population. Right. So much of exerting authority is about winning the loyalty or at least the obedience of the population being governed. Right. And so if you can convince the population that you are now the authority in charge, that you ought to be obeyed and that even better, that you have the legitimate right to rule. If you can reorientate, reorient your population around that idea, that is very hard to roll back. Um, and so it gets, I think, really to the heart of what it means to govern, right? It's more than just, do you have buildings? Are you taxing people? It's like, who do the people actually believe has the right to rule? And that reorientation phase, I think, is the most insidious part of subversion.
0: And it plays out in so many of these cases of foreign subversion. Fascinating. Um, So we're going to get into the details of how you test the theory. Um, You know, you have this very intricate set of empirical tests that fit together really nicely. But I wonder if you could start by just giving us an overview of your methodological approach.
1: So the book, I think, makes the theoretical argument proceeds in a couple of steps, as you've already alluded to. Right. So there's this idea that the main claim of the book is that subversion weakens the state. Right. So we observe a subversion, then we should observe um, state weakness. Right. And then, as you mentioned, there are these two conditions under which subversion is likely to happen, which is the coincidence of means and motive. So we can think about those two steps um, as distinct analytical pieces of the argument that are then subjected to, uh, uh, met- to testing. Right. So the book takes each step. Um, in turn, the there is a statistical analysis which observes the first the set of conditions means and motive, and the outcome of state weakness. And the reason I have to do this, right? The reason I'm not observing this middle step of foreign subversion, despite the centrality of foreign subversion to the argument itself, is because in a um, large statistical context, one that spans multiple decades, as it does in the book, 1960 to about 2010, um, for a large number of countries, it's actually hard to see subversion in that cases, right? One of the, the features of subversion is that it's hard to observe, right, because it's operating through these proxy groups, and often the external state has an incentive to deny its culpability, right? So because it's hard to observe subversion in a large um, cross-national context, I look for evidence, or I look for the the presence of those two conditions, motive and means, and I can show that where those two conditions hold are also the places within states that are more likely to be weak, right, where state absence is limited or, or where the state is is limited, actually. But of course, because I've I, in that first step, I don't observe foreign subversion. The next set of tests in the book has to link foreign subversion both to means and motive as an outcome, And then to state weakness, right, as a predictor of state weakness. So after the large N section, which is the quantitative test, I then um, zoom in to what I call a medium N analysis, right, a smaller set of countries where I can show that when we have the coincidence of motive and means, then we see the state, the external state deploying subversion in the book, I zoom into the context of the post-Soviet space. And one of the nice things about this this part of the world is that it allows me to hold several factors constant, right? So as I mentioned before, um, one of perhaps the most important uh, foreign policy issue for um, Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union is the foreign policy orientation of the other post-Soviet republics. Are they going to be more pro-Western or are they going to be more pro-Russia, right? And this is really the defining axis of relations um, between these countries after that sort of initial chaotic moment of the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? And that ability to hold that constant is not something I can do in a much larger context where I'm looking across a vast number of continents over a 50-year span of time. So I like that. The other thing that's really neat about this post-Soviet context is that It also lets me get some leverage on um, this idea of means, right? Because all of these post Soviet states had to decide the set of policies about who could be a member of the state. These are titular republics during the Soviet Union, which means that, say, um, the Republic of Kazakhstan, for example, or like Kazakhstan is a place for the Kazakh people, right? But Kazakhstan. Is not only populated by the Kazakh people, there are Russian ethnic Russians there, uh, members of other ethnic groups. So many of these states had to decide a set of policies about citizenship and about the rights uh, of individuals and who would get citizenship. Right? Some states adopted very broad policies, and some states, like Estonia, initially adopted quite narrow policies that led to, say, certain populations feeling excluded, marginalized, and aggrieved. Because this is a common thing for all of the post-Soviet republics, again, I can hold that constant. Okay, So I do that. And then I can show that where um, these groups are aggrieved and organized, where there's the presence of means, and where the country, the target state, is moving toward the West, that is when we see Russia attempt to use subversion. And importantly, in this section of the book, I can show that when only one factor is present, we don't observe subversion. Then the final step is to take subversion and link it to state weakness. And there I do a deep dive into two Southeast Asian cases. Um, The first is Malaysia's subversion against the Philippines that began in the late 1960s and continued into the early 1970s. The second case is Thailand's subversion of neighboring Cambodia in the 1980s when Cambodia was occupied by Vietnam. Thailand and Vietnam were considered enemies at the time. And so I can actually use um, the, By taking a deep dive into these cases, I can show the degradation of state authority as a result of subversion. In the the Philippines case, I can show how life changed as a result of uh, Malaysian subversion, right? Tracing the arming and support of um, militant groups in the southern Philippines and the results of that on governance in the southern Philippines. The Cambodian case is a little bit different because um, there's this... It's unfortunate but convenient for me as a researcher that at the time that the Vietnamese took over Cambodia, there was basically no state anywhere throughout that territory. And that's a legacy of the, the malgovernance of the Khmer Rouge. And I can show in that case that the Vietnamese were able to increase state authority, except in the places that were being targeted by Um, Thai-supported insurgents, right? So the areas that are subject to Thai subversion are places where the Vietnamese are never able to consolidate authority. And so it helps me solve a variety of methodological problems, but most importantly, it really lets me show the pathways through which foreign subversion weakens governance in target states.
0: And it's a very um, compelling and elegant uh, design, you know, and I want to sort of assure listeners that if also reading through the book You know, even the parts of the book that you would expect to be jargony, like the description of the data set early on, um, are so so beautifully written. It was really quite a pleasure to read through them. Um, So I'm eager to uh, ask you about sort of uh, your research on Russia's relationship with uh, the Soviet successor states. Um, Now, obviously, this is not something that you look at uh, in the book, because the book was published in 2020. But we're recording this episode one month after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, You know, does your research help shed light on these events? I think so. Um, So how can it help us understand
1: what is happening right now in Ukraine? And I think when we think about the current crisis and war in Ukraine, we have to remember that this did not start in 2022, right? There is a history here. It did not even start in 2014. It actually goes back, I think, to the mid-2000s when Russia is really grappling with the reality of um, the Baltic states joining NATO in 2004, right? And this is a shock to Moscow because the Baltic states used to be in the Soviet sphere. And Moscow now sees that NATO is virtually on its doorstep. So the story, I think, gets started there. Um, And so the book is able to actually speak to the sense of threat that Russia feels, its attempt to use subversion, but in the Estonian case, one of the two pieces is not there. And so we don't actually see subversion. Um, But let's fast forward now to 2014, right? So we have this background of knowing that Russia is opposed to the eastward expansion of NATO. So 2014 is a time where Ukraine is courting the West. Right. So we have um, we have the Maidan revolution. We have Russia feeling like, okay, Ukraine is actually this is happening. And so the first step it takes before we see these events of conventional war, the first step it takes is to cripple eastern Ukraine. Right. This is where foreign subversion of eastern Ukraine gets started. Crimea is separate. Crimea holds a, a very special place in sort of the Russian imagination. And so the choice of annexation is quite different from the choice of subverting Eastern Ukraine. But I think my book helps us understand why Russia would want to undermine governance in Eastern Ukraine, but not actually annex it, right? If Russia were to annex Eastern Ukraine, it would lose a source of leverage over Ukraine, or it would at least have less leverage. Um, than it would if there's sort of ongoing instability in the East, right? And so it would, I think the way to interpret that, the events of 2014 in the East is that by making Ukraine unstable in the East, it becomes unattractive as a partner for the West. So it becomes an extremely unlikely candidate for NATO membership because no NATO state wants to admit a member into the Alliance that cannot even control its own territory. And so for a while, we have this sort of ongoing, relatively low-level conflict in the East. And it turns out it doesn't work in the sense that it does not stop Ukraine um, from courting the West. It does not put an end to the ambition of joining NATO. If anything, it actually kind of backfires. It sort of shows um, people that without the protection of NATO, you may be vulnerable to these kind of activities. And so, you know, let's fast forward again to 2022. Again, Ukraine is reaching out to the West. It's now been shown that this like low level of uh, fomenting instability via subversion has not worked to stop that. And so um, Putin has to escalate. Right. And so it so Putin escalates by massing troops and then eventually invading and in this case, the existence of this breakaway area provides a convenient, I think, excuse or uh, rationale to justify some of Putin's actions. He has given many, many justifications for or explanations for why they have ing- invaded Ukraine. But one of them was to prevent genocide against the ethnic Russians living in this area. Completely false, right? But he, by by being able to say that, like we recognize these areas as independent states, they are under attack from Ukraine. We are coming in on their behalf. It allows Putin to to co-opt some of the ideas and norms around proper interstate behavior. We saw this before in 2008 in Russia as well, where Russia claimed to be intervening on behalf of um, an aggrieved population, hijacking the norms of sort of uh, ethnic self-determination, national self-determination. And so I think... To the extent that it sets the stage for the Russian invasion, I think you know my book can help us understand why um, the why there was this sort of multi-step process. But I think to go beyond that to understand, you know, the end game here, my book cannot comment on that.
0: Thank you. That is that. That's very helpful. I think, um, especially for our listeners who might be listening. Uh, to this, as you know, as they're trying to process um, the events in Ukraine. Um, so I want to step back and think about the historical cases uh, that you look at in the book. Um, so as you mentioned, you look at uh, two sort of pairs of states, right? You look at Malaysia's role in undermining state authority in the southern Philippines, um, and then you look at uh, Thailand's uh, subversion against Cambodia when it was under Vietnamese occupation. Um, so, maybe let's start with the Malaysia Philippines uh, pair, right? Uh, what is going on in that case?
1: So, that's a complicated story that uh, dates back to, I think, the formation of Malaysia as a state. So, Malaysia was a federation that was comprised of um, different entities, which originally, I think, included Singapore, uh, but also included a piece of territory that the Philippines had um, claimed sovereignty over, right? And this territory um, used to be a sultanate that was associated with the Philippine archipelago. And so at the time that Malaysia is formed, right, it's formed out of pieces of, of the British Empire. And that piece of territory that the Philippines once claimed sovereignty over goes to be part of Malaysia. And so there's already sort of bad blood between these two countries because the Philippines is like, hey, that's ours. And the Malaysians are like, no, it's not. Um, so there's there's a bit of that. And the Philippines does not back off from pressing these claims. Right. They don't want to relinquish their claim to this territory. Um, in fact, at, at one point, it's actually built into the Constitution that there is this claim to this territory and Malaysia keeps trying to get them to back off and like recognize their authority over this. And um, part when when all of this fails, right? And when Malaysia finds that it is unable to get the Philippines to back off, um, it turns to the strategy of foreign subversion. And so here I think of this case as basically illustrating both bargaining leverage and the idea of tie down, right? This distraction element that is if the Philippines is busy dealing with instability in its own territory, it's not going to have the time and diplomatic energy to pursue the territorial claim against Malaysia. And so um, Malaysia basically takes ex- advantage of a set of aggrieved groups in the Muslim part of the Philippines in the south. Right, These groups have a long history of marginalization and resistance from the rest of the Philippines, which tends to be uh, ethnic, which is ethnically different and also Catholic. Um, It takes advantage of these groups, offers them shelter, and I think really helps them train and to think of themselves not as members of different ethnic groups, but actually united together as Muslims who are resisting, um, uh, who are resisting the encroachment of these Christian Filipino settlers who are coming into their land and who are ignoring their cultural claims of autonomy and like cult- claims to land. So it's a very opportunistic story, right? So there are these connections like Malaysia a Muslim state. That's not really what's going on here. This is opportunistic. So these groups come over and train with Malaysia. Malaysia is conveniently able to claim that it's not really the central government that is involved in this. It's actually this grandstanding guy, um, this colorful character Tun Mustafa, who's got family connections, and he's the one to blame for all that. But they repeatedly offer the Philippines help in resolving this situation, reigning in Mustafa, if the Philippines would be willing to back off from its territorial dispute, its territorial claim. And the Philippines doesn't want to do this at first. So it basically turns to combating the instability in its southern periphery. It starts trying to ramp up development projects in the the early 70s. And it finds that it has a really hard time, right? Because it's not doing this in a vacuum. It's doing it in the face of armed resistance. And eventually, the Philippines actually capitulates. So they don't formally back off from the territorial dispute but they agree to put it on the back burner. And I think it's telling that Malaysia itself starts to back off from active support. Unfortunately, for the Philippines, one of the features of foreign subversion is that it's, even though the sponsor state can turn off its support, the proxies don't go away, right? And other states ended up stepping in to provide ongoing support. And what we've seen is a multi-decade civil war in the Southern part of the Philippines, even though Malaysia itself is no longer involved. And in fact, would prefer that there was no longer this instability, right?
0: That's um, fascinating. And you know, I wish we had the time to also uh, talk in detail about the, the other case that you uh, examine uh, closely, Thailand's uh, subversion of Cambodia. Um, but let's kind of zoom out, right? And looking at the book as a whole, Um, What would you say are the policy implications for those who are concerned about these ungoverned spaces?
1: So I think the first one is to think of the problem of ungoverned space as a deeply political problem, right? It's the very beginning of our conversation. You said this, you summarized um, some of the claims that I make, which is that we cannot understand state weakness as simply the product of a lack of resources or simply the product of domestic politics, right? If it was a lack of resources, right, that it's simply too expensive for states to govern all of their territories, then a very easy solution is actually to provide those resources, right? Whether via military assistance or economic assistance. This is more of a tech, like in that sense, that would be a technical problem. Rather, my book suggests that ungoverned space is deeply political in origin. That it's political in the sense that it arises from grievances between a population or the armed groups, the proxies and the host state government, but also grievances and disputes between the external sponsor state and the target state. Right. And so throwing money at it is not going to solve the problem that to solve the problem, you actually have to work toward resolving those deep political issues. That's hard. Right? I think the other way, uh, the other policy implication that emerges from this project is that we can't just think of ungoverned um, space as domestic in origin, right, that we actually have to pay attention to the surrounding international environment. Now, Pakistan and Afghanistan are a very good case of this, right? It's not just that Afghanistan was a poor country, that its government was corrupt, that it was unable to actually protect or provide for the population. It's that The neighboring state had grievances against Kabul. The neighboring state was Pakistan, which was very concerned about um, being encircled by unfriendly states. And traditionally, um, Afghanistan had claims to Pakistan's territory and had also at various points in history been um, somewhat aligned with India, which is the nightmare scenario for Pakistan. Um, To ignore the role of Pakistan, to ignore how it sheltered the Afghan uh, Taliban, And how it fomented and sort of provided the safe havens for um, these groups, to ignore that would be to miss a big part of the explanation for the enduring weakness of Afghanistan. Again, it's not the only reason. right? But I think this is a very clear case where if you don't deal with the international element of state weakness, it's going to be very hard to strengthen the state. And so my book, I think, really urges policymakers to attend to the international elements.
0: And it certainly makes a very compelling case that that's exactly what they ought to do. Um, Now, obviously, we've only really skimmed the surface of what's in the book. But is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for listeners to know?
1: So there's an additional policy implication that I think is relevant for listeners. Um, You know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine notwithstanding, it is generally the case that since 1945, and certainly in a long view of history, we have seen the decline of conventional interstate wars, right? That's part of what makes Russia's invasion of Ukraine so shocking, right? You wake up and it's like, wow, there's a war in Europe. Um, that doesn't mean that conflict has gone away, right? So early on, I mentioned that we should think of foreign subversion as an alternative or substitute for conventional force, right? For much of the world since um, 1945, this is the way, foreign subversion has been the way that states have pursued their policy interests when they conflict with each other, right? We can think about this in terms of proxy wars during the Cold War. It's not direct conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. It plays out through these external sponsorships of Non-state groups um, in third countries, right? And again, we—it's not just a post-Cold War story. It's it's not just a Cold War story either, as the cases in the book and as recent events show us. And so, I think that we should not make the mistake. It's weird to talk about this in the context of an ongoing interstate war in Europe, but we—you know—given the context in which this book was originally published, it was important to stress that conflict. And violence have not gone away, despite you know the arguments advanced by public intellectuals who've argued for the better angels of our nature. Right, uh, conflict still exists, and if we don't pay attention to the alternative forms it takes, we will miss a large part of the violence and instability that happens in the world. Now, again, Russia is currently reminding us that conventional war has not gone away either. And I think that the the broad takeaway is basically that conventional war and these hybrid or unconventional conflicts that play out via foreign subversion can exist together. And we need to be attuned to all the different ways in which states are gonna pursue their interests when they're conflictual.
0: I'm really glad you added that, thank you. Um, So Melissa, we've taken up a lot of your time. So just uh, one final question. you know this book is done right uh what are you working on now so now i'm i'm in the
1: early stages of a project on the failures of international state building right so this is a, the first book was a story about why or how external actors could undermine the states but external involvement in other countries domestic affairs is not the only type of uh does not only involve undermining them as we know from the past 20 years there has been a significant amount of effort and resources uh, spent on trying to strengthen states. And as the fall of Kabul in August of 2021 reminds us, it is extremely hard to build and strengthen states, right? The track record of international state building has um, has not been good. And so the second project that I want to work on is to think about the domestic politics of international state building failures. So the first book is bringing international politics into the story of uh, state weakness where we largely had domestic uh, explanations. The second book is going to be bringing domestic politics into a largely international story of of international state building failure, right? And to enrich our understanding and to understand why it is that external actors have struggled so much and to bring domestic conflicts to the fore.
0: That sounds like a great project. Um, well, Melissa, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. The book is Melissa Lee's *Crippling Leviathan: How Foreign Subversion Weakens the State*, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening.